0: The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so let's start the questions again uh, and see what happens. Uh, (coughs) Okay, number one. Uh, Ajahn, does kama determine everything that a person encounters in life? Uh, Thank you. Uh, the answer is no, and uh, <laughs> I'm going to say a little bit more than that. Uh, the um, uh, kamma determines basically the uh, uh, rebirth that you get. Uh, yeah, so it is like the mental state that you build up over a kind of over a lifetime. Uh, the mind takes on a certain quality, uh, and then when you die, that quality kind of continues in the next life, uh, and that's why you take a certain rebirth usually in the next life. But the Details of a life are very much determined by uh, uh, all kinds of things. Yeah, if you become reborn as a human being, you can expect a number of things to happen. Uh, human life means uh, certain types of happiness, certain types of pain, certain types of things happening. Getting you know, getting losing your job, getting divorced, uh, having you know, going on meditation retreats. That's what happens during human life. Uh, and uh, so you can expect certain things to happen. And the Buddha says in a number of places that there are eight reasons or eight causes for uh, the experience of happiness and pain during, a, during any lifetime. And illness is one of those. Yeah, so illness is not necessarily anything to do with karma. You get sick because you have a human body. Human bodies get sick, and that's the nature of human bodies. It has nothing to do with karma. Even if you get something serious like cancer or whatever, it may just be the nature of the human body. The Buddha mentions assault. Yeah, assault, obviously, is quite a serious thing, and yet assault is not necessarily anything to do with karma. It can have to do simply with being in the wrong place at the wrong time, so that is why you get assaulted. Or accidents that you have, you trip over something because you're being a bit careless or whatever. Again, nothing to do with kamma, but just part and parcel of human existence. So what this means is that you, know, you have to be careful how you live your life. You can't be heedless. You can't say I'm going to rely on my karma and just do whatever I want. If you do that, you're being very silly and you end up having a lot of suffering as a consequence. So always be careful how you live and then you're going to have the maximum outcome. So karma does not determine everything. And that's why when people sometimes they come and ask you and they say, oh, this happened to me, what karma did I do in the past to get this? And the answer has got nothing to do with karma at all. This is what happens when you are a human being. Uh, the problem was becoming human. That's why you made the mistake, not because of uh, karma that you made in the past. So uh, sometimes it can be karma. sometimes kamma can be uh, the cause of a short life. But even a short life doesn't necessarily happen because of Kama. Yeah, Like the uh, big tsunami that we had in 2004 where uh, the north of Sumatra was kind of devastated and 100,000 people or whatever died there. Uh, it is not everyone didn't die because of bad Kama. Some people may have had bad Kama, but some of them died because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, this is what happens to human life. Sometimes you die young. Yeah, that's What happens when you're a human being, unfortunately? Okay. Dear Arjan, please explain again, sorry, the difference between samadhi nimitta and nimitta in the suttas. Is it correct that the samadhi nimitta is only found in the commentaries? If it is... Is it then the Buddha's word? Is Samadhi Nimitta essential before entering jhana? Thank you. And notice the word samadhi nimitta is actually found in the suttas. It's just that the, what it means in the suttas is different from what how we normally use the word now in contemporary Buddhism. In contemporary Buddhism, the way we use the word samadhi nimitta is as a light in the mind. In the suttas, it means the object of meditation. Yeah, that's the difference. Does that mean that the Samadhi Nimitta is not necessary because it isn't mentioned as such? Actually, it is mentioned, but it's mentioned with a different word in the suttas. If you go to a sutta such as the Upakilesa Sutta, which is the sutta on the def- refined defilements of the mind, Middling Sayings Number 128, you can look it up yourself, it talks about the Obasa, Ubasa means light, and Rupa, Rupa means like form, yeah, so uh, the monks talk about seeing lights and forms, and then they use those lights and forms, they stabilize them, and then they enter jhanas. That's what you see in that sutta, and that light and form is basically what we now call the nimitta. So it is mentioned in the suttas, and this is in fact the progress to awakening that the Buddha himself used. So the Buddha used the uh, what we now call the lights in the mind, the Samadhinimitas, as we use it now, to enter meditation. My point was simply that these words are sometimes used differently in the suttas than they are in contemporary Buddhism. So you have to make make a distinction there. You cannot assume, when you read the suttas, you cannot assume that the words are used in exactly the same way. Sometimes you have to be a bit circumspect. So there is evidence in the suttas as well that samadhi nimitta is a requirement for entering deep samadhi. You need that light, that is... uh, seems to be the path into jhanas and samadhi for for most people. Okay. Uh, Yesterday you told a story about meditating in India and wishing the busloads of noisy tourists would go away. This is how I feel when much of the group meditation time is interrupted by people coming and going rustling the pseudonyls and drinking so much tea. How do I maintain mindfulness of breath and not always be swept away by these irritations? (laughs) Is it meta, meta, meta? well, what you have to do is, this is why you want to give rise to mindfulness, first of all. Yeah? First of all, you learn to have the non-judgmental mindfulness. That is what I meant by that. Non-judgmental means that you sit here and you are just aware of whatever arises and passes away. And it's got nothing to do with you, yeah, don't, don't allow yourself to be distracted by what other people are doing. Because people are just people, and people do people things. And part of what people do is make noise. Yeah, that's how people are. So you just allow people to be people. You cannot control these things anyway. And once you realize you can't control it, then you allow it to be. And you don't get bothered by it The idea, the reason why you get irritated is because you think there is a solution. You think people should be different. But people cannot be different. People just have to be what they are. And the sooner you get that, the more ease you will have in your meditation. So you sit back. You just observe. You're just mindful. You allow things to be. You don't judge anyone. People don't do it to irritate you. They just do it because that's what they have to do. I've been telling people in the interviews that people are like red traffic lights, yeah, when you come to a red traffic light, do you get angry and upset? You hopefully not. I, I don't know. It's possible that you do, but hopefully you don't get too angry and upset, because traffic lights just get red every now and again. You know, that's just the nature of traffic lights. In exactly the same way, people are like red traffic lights. If you don't get angry with, with red traffic lights, you also should not get angry with people, because the principle is exactly the same. That's how you look at people. So, remember, next time you hear noise, remember red traffic light, red traffic light, yeah? Then you are in business. Then there's no problem anymore. So, then this is the idea of mindfulness. When the mindfulness arises, you get a feeling of separation between you and the external world around you. It's as if you are insulated from the world, in a sense. And ideally, you give rise to that before you go to the breath. So, if you are already trying to be mindful of the breath uh, you probably have gone to the breath perhaps too early you haven't established enough distance yet uh, between yourself and what is happening around you uh, yeah this is uh, it is not always easy sometimes you uh, go to the breath a little bit early because uh, uh, you know you, but basically you want to test it out and try out and see what happens uh, that's ok uh, but I'm just telling you the ideal way that these things happen, the kind of stage wise process here. huh? So, uh, and yes, you're quite right. Metta, metta, metta is certainly the right way to go. And remember that even though people sometimes are not perfect, they are good people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. Yeah, they have good intentions. They want to do the right thing. And because of that, it's uh, it's always good to have, uh, have metta and remember the big picture rather than get kind of swept away by the small things that are not so important. Yeah, this is the right way. And of course, everyone... You know, at the same time, everyone I'm sure will try to be sensitive and careful uh, if they can, and then everyone kind of cooperates to the best of your ability, and we create a good meditation environment here. Okay. The uh, uh, next one. Last year you used the simile uh, of a of nibbana being like a lamp which goes out when the fuel is finished. How is that different from annihilation? How is different from annihilation? It is different from annihilation because annihilation means something being annihilated. Yeah, This is kind of the whole idea of the Buddha suttas. When the Buddha talks about annihilation, it is a wrong view. It is a wrong view because it is the idea that an essential existing reality is getting annihilated. This is what annihilation means in Buddhism. And this is uh, what it feels like if you are a putujana, if you're not an Arya, yet a noble one. Uh, it feels like when everything stops, something is being annihilated. What is being annihilated is you, because we all feel like we have some kind of essential existence. Uh, uh, the lamp going out is called cessation, not annihilation, uh, because it's just a process ceasing. Uh, it is different from an, uh, uh, annihilation, because no essential thing is being, de- uh, being destroyed or disappearing uh. Yeah, and, and this is hard to understand, this distinction. The only, and the reason you can't see that distinction is because you uh, don't really fully understand the difference between the process and an existing entity. The only way you can understand the difference between a process and an existing entity is to have insight into non-self. Once you have insight into non-self, then you understand what the process is and you can distinguish it from an entity. But uh, before that, it's all a bit blurry. Yeah, and there is because there is that feeling of uh, some sort of essence inside of you, and that's why this distinction is hard to understand. Okay, Ajahn, could you please give an overview about the different ways of practicing walking meditation? Thank you. Um, yes, uh, there is uh, isn't really uh, there is many. Things you can do, yeah. there's lots of stuff you can do uh, when, while you do walking meditation. Uh, ideally what you do is you have a nice piece of fairly even ground uh, and then you kind of make it, you make it a certain length, maybe 30 steps or something like that, 25-30 steps. Uh, it doesn't really matter all that much. And then you have a kind of that and you walk back and forth uh, on that little piece of land that you have set out in this way. yeah. And uh, then what, how you use your mind really depends on what you want to achieve during this particular walking meditation. So if you uh, want to practice Samadhi practice in walking meditation, then often the best way, uh, or one way and uh, anyway, is to watch the movement of your feet. So you follow just like you follow the breath in breath meditation, you follow the movement of your feet in walking meditation. Yes, that's how you can practice samadhi in walking. And it is possible to become incredibly peaceful and still by just watching uh, the feet and how the feet go, uh, how the feet, you know, the, the movement of the feet in this particular way. Yeah. But um, it may be that if you have been sitting a lot and you have been watching the breath quite a bit already and you have been doing samatha meditation, sometimes, you know, you kind of, you you go through a natural cycle in your meditation, and meditation becomes deeper, and then you kind of come out. And when you come out, often it's good to wait a little bit before you do more samadhi, yeah, because the cycles tend to have a natural occurrence to them. So then you you wait and you do something else. So when you do walking meditation, you can uh, you know. Uh, do things like contemplation Uh, you can do a contemplation of uh, you know i've been talking about uh, uh, impermanence for example Uh, you can contemplate impermanence about everything in the world being impermanent uh, and how that relates to your life uh, and what that means for your spiritual practice etc etc yeah just remembering the impermanence of everything people dying and yourself being subject to death uh, so any kind of contemplation topic is useful when, you, when you're when walking. You can do metta meditation while you're walking. Yeah, it is useful. You can just uh, uh, send some metta to all the various directions around the world, as it is described in the suttas. That can be very, uh, a very nice thing to do while you're walking. Um, so these are already a few things. You can do a death contemplation while you're walking. Uh, again, this is similar to the contemplation of impermanence, But remembering that you're going to die one day, just uh, bringing up that memory. And uh, maybe we can talk about that a bit more later on. uh, But the idea that you can die at any time, death is certain. uh, And the only thing which is uncertain is the time of that death. uh, And that's kind of interesting, yeah? If you can die at any time, what does that mean? Uh, Well, it means that you basically, it means that you let go a lot of the world around you. There's no point in holding on to things if you're just about to die uh, yeah so you let go and this can make you even more peaceful or if you you can also just walk walk about and walk back and forth and just enjoy the peace and quiet and not really do anything at all just kind of be mindful of the you know just being here and just enjoying it Um, and just be aware maybe of the content of your mind uh, to kind of uh, find out a bit more about what your obstructions are, etc., etc., and see what arises as you walk back and forth, uh, and just being mindful. uh, That can be quite nice as well. uh, And there are some monks who uh, recommend that sort of walking meditation. uh. It all depends on what you want to do and what is required. If you feel that the meditation sitting hasn't been going going all that well, uh, then do something very relaxing when you go out. Uh, if the sitting meditation has been going well, it is often a good time to contemplate something afterwards uh, because you have a degree of peace, etc. Uh, yeah, if you have find that you have too many defilements in the mind, then do some death contemplation to see if the defilements can be overcome by doing death contemplation. This is kind of the purpose of all of this contemplation, especially death contemplation, is to overcome defilements. Uh, so any of these topics are, can can be used while you're doing walking. so um, and it's really up to you to try to find out what is appropriate. You have to know your mind and know what you need at any particular time. And if you just want to walk around randomly, that's okay as well. This walk walk, have a bush walk or whatever. that's also a nice thing to do sometimes. so um, and all of these things can contribute to your meditation if you do it in the right way. Okay. Dear Ajahn, you mentioned that the start of the meditation should be of a relaxing experience. I do this so well that before I could start watching my breath, I started falling asleep. <laughs> what, are, what are your recommendations? To remain relaxed yet alert, i.e. not fall asleep. <laughs> okay, so sometimes when you fall asleep it is sometimes it is because you need to sleep, yeah it really depends on the on the circumstances but if you are if you are relaxing in this way and you do fall asleep very often it's because you need a little bit of sleep, so if you want to snore a little bit, please go ahead and do a bit of snoring that's that's okay. Uh, or or then maybe go back to your room and have a rest but uh, allow yourself to fall asleep and then when you come out of the sleep after a few minutes you may start to feel alert because then you are really allowing your mind to relax. And I always mention that I have one of my one of my good meditation friends. Uh, he's a monk, uh, and he always nods for 15 minutes at the beginning of every meditation that he does, uh, and then oh, he brightens up, yeah, and then he's really clear, and then his meditation is going really well afterwards. Uh, so if you can emulate that, then you're doing really, really well. Uh, so fall asleep, yeah, uh, bang, and then you're in business. <laughs> That's the kind of the <laughs> one way of doing this. Uh, so don't worry too much, if you, because the whole point is to relax. You, uh, the alternative uh, that you can do is like to count the breath or something like that, but really, it, what it does if you do that, you're just using willpower to sustain your attention and usually that tires out the mind even more. So just allow yourself to relax and then see where it takes you. Um, one of the tricks of overcoming tiredness that you find in the suttas uh, uh, when the Buddha says that there is not enough energy in the mind uh, is to do some kind of contemplation that gives rise to energy so it depends on the degree of tiredness if you're very tired that's not going to work but if it's just a little bit of dullness then it may work so then you have to contemplate something which gives rise to joy yeah you have to kind of uh, uh, think of a sense of gratitude for being here, sense of you know thinking about something that is really uh, wonderful in your life that you've been practicing Buddhism for so many years. Wow, I'm so lucky to have these teachings, yeah to have the Buddha as a teacher cheapest. how would I you know this is I'm so so how fortunate I, I am uh, to have all of these wonderful teachings available to me. Uh, something like that, that inspires you, Yeah, that kind of makes you feel so fortunate. Count some of your blessings in life. Uh. The fact that you are here means that you already have so many blessings, uh, so many good things happening in your life. Uh. And once you get that inspiration going, uh, then sleep tends to be abolished. Bang, it's gone. Uh. And then you feel kind of joyful and happy instead. Uh. But uh, basically, I think that what you are doing here, falling asleep, is not a big problem. Huh? Yeah? It's just a matter of being uh, patient, uh, and you will overcome it, and then you carry on on the other side of the, of the sleep. And then you hopefully uh, it will uh, go much better from there on. Huh? Okay. Uh, next one. Hello, Ajahn Brahmali. Thursday and Friday, my mind was peaceful and I felt relaxed as soon as I arrived. Today, my mind is like my kids, my kids busy and trying to get my attention. Okay, i my kids with this and that. Do I just take it as not such a good meditation for today and keep going? Also, is there a ten to thirty-minute practice I can take home with me? to stop the busy mind. Uh, thank you, and with much meta. Um, okay, that's good. You, you were felt peaceful straight away and relaxed as soon as you arrived. That's wonderful. And now you're kind of... Uh, you, uh, you, uh, something is... Uh, uh, you're getting more busy after a while and sometimes maybe you, maybe the mind w- was peaceful but maybe the meditation wasn't that interesting Yeah. so because it wasn't that interesting then you lose a bit of interest and your mind becomes busy again huh? and then you start thinking about all of these kind of things and this is one of the reasons why getting some joy arising in the meditation is so important huh? because that joy will be the glue that glues you on to the meditation object. Huh? If you get Joy rising, you can't get enough of that breath. Uh, that breath becomes so wonderful and beautiful, uh, and all you want to do is hang out with your breath and don't want to do anything else. Uh, so uh, you have to try to find that sense of enjoying what you're doing. This is really the uh, the kind of the crucial issue here. Uh, and then when you when you start enjoying it, uh, then um, uh, you will be much better. Uh, and there's two aspects to that enjoyment, and one is to understand that uh, uh, the things of the world are not really going to give you any satisfaction the more you understand that the more you can let go of the world the more unreliable you understand the world is the more out of control you understand it is the more you understand it will always let you down at the end of the day yeah always going to let you down at the very latest when you die but usually long before that it's going to let you down once you get that actually it has become starts to become very uninteresting Yeah, it is actually, oh, I just want to get rid of it. You get a bit of aversion to the whole world. uh, And that is really a good state of mind, to have a little bit of aversion, just want to push it away. And then that brings you to uh, the meditation instead. But it's important to have some happiness in life. Yeah, so if you haven't got any happiness in the world, uh, it's important to find happiness in meditation practice instead. So you want to have some joy in your meditation. Otherwise, a life without joy is a a joyless life. So uh, that is not no, no good either,. So uh, uh just keep going and see if you can find give a little bit give rise to a little bit of that joy, and then hopefully uh, it will get better again. And sometimes you have to go through the ups and downs, yeah, because that's what happens in meditation. It's never going to be absolutely stable. Actually, never is very rarely is absolutely stable. So you just have to go through the ups and downs a little bit. Uh, is there a th- ten to thirty minute practice I can take home with me uh, to stop my busy mind? Don't ever think of stopping your busy mind uh, because as soon as you think of stopping it, uh, you're already using willpower. Uh, so instead of stopping it, allowing it to be is really often the uh, the, the the trick that makes meditation work. Uh, don't force it, allow it to be, and allow it to come to a stop on, on its own. So the uh, the best thing to do sometimes is to have a guided meditation at home. Uh, something that you feel works for you, that inspires you, that makes it easier to meditate. Uh, yeah, uh, Bring that home and then listen to that during your meditation practice. Just to give you that, getting into the right mood of meditation. The mood is often dif- difficult to establish at home because uh, you haven't got the environment, you haven't got the people around you, and for that it can be much harder. Huh? So instead of uh, just trying on your own without success, uh, get some support like support in this way huh? and do a meditation that works for you. Huh? Yeah, typical meditations would be just relaxing and if you can do a bit of breath meditation, but don't have, even have to do that uh, or you can do a bit of meta meditation uh, if that works for you. Huh? And then uh, this would be the typical thing, so get some guided meditation in those areas uh, and see what happens. Uh. Okay. Uh, Dear Ajahn, speaking of meditating on a corpse, if at, w- if at one of your retreats somebody passed away, would you use the opportunity or call the police? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, okay, on a more serious note, does this type of meditation happen nowadays? Um, yes, it does. There are people who do corpse meditation, uh, but in the suttas, you, you don't actually need a corpse yeah, to do the corpse meditation. All you need is a bit of imagination, and that imagination actually is what kind of drives the corpse meditation. If you have some pictures of some corpses, it ca- can be handy. In our monastery in Bodhinyana, we have this book full of kind of terrible pictures of corpses and all this kind of stuff. And we have, you know, if the police were to find out what we had in the monastery, we <laughs> might get into serious trouble. But um, so yes, people sometimes do these kind of meditations even now. And a few years ago, of course, in our monastery, we often have kangaroos dying. And a kangaroo is, you know, when a kangaroo dies, it's pretty much like a human being dying, I suppose. And you see the kangaroo slowly rotting away and all the maggots coming in and maggots eat crawling with maggots and the stench is terrible. And uh, we had some monks sitting around watching this kangaroo corpse uh, yeah, for a couple of days and nights just seeing it kind of deteriorating. Uh, and it's pretty disgusting. Uh, yeah, it's really it's really kind of repulsive actually. Uh. But that's what they were doing. I wouldn't really recommend it. I don't think it uh, does anything except uh, uh, diminish the quality of your life. Usually, huh? so. Um, <laughs> but uh, but if you if you are already a quite a happy person huh, and your meditation is going quite well, but you are concerned about having a few remaining attachments to the body, that's usually the right time to do corpse meditation. Huh? Okay. Dear Ajahn Brahmali, in recent years, 10-day Vipassana meditation retreats based on a breathing method of the Burmese teacher Goenka have become very popular, indeed. Given your own emphasis on developing ease in meditation, do you have any comments about this type of meditation practice? Do you think it might be too much based on uh, um, too prescriptive an approach based on willpower and too prescriptive an approach with meta, um, I, I don't really know all the details of the Goenka method, but uh, uh, from what I hear and what I understand, I've never done it myself, uh, uh, it is very much based on the teaching that Goenka did. So it's a very kind of rigid approach. Yeah? It is kind of you do things in a certain way and there's very little flexibility allowed in the Goenka method. Uh, uh, and the teachers who are there are often, uh, they just follow a prescription, as you say, uh, established by Goenka. And they're not really allowed and shouldn't really go outside of that description given by Goenka. So it, is, uh, it tends to be very rigid. And if you start to go a little bit nuts on the retreat, they say, well, just keep on watching the nutsness. And as you <laughs> <laughs> you have to get insight into whatever is happening in your mind. And what happens, of course, is that sometimes people go really crazy. here, And they have kind of psychotic episodes and all kinds of problems because of taking it too far and not understanding when you should pull out and when you should really relax rather than carry on. And in the Goenka technique, what they do is that as soon as you come in, they tell you to watch the breath, And this is exactly one of the reasons why I emphasize we should not really be doing that because uh, that is not the teaching of the Buddha. He doesn't say you should watch the breath straight away. He says specifically, as I mentioned today, to establish mindfulness first. So we have to do things in the right way. Some people may it may work for some people if they already have very uh, good mental state and they come into the retreat in the right way and they're already living a moral life, it may work but for a lot of people it's not going to work it's going to be too, um, much of a, too much basically to start off like that and then being told to sit for hours and hours and hours every day. So there's not enough flexibility there you need, you need an approach that is more flexible whereby individual differences are kind of catered for within the system uh, and you're not uh, forced to do certain things that you're not ready for. uh. So um, I think, to me anyway, that's the weakness of the Gwenka system, that it is not flexible enough. uh, uh, But for some people it works. And of course if it works for you, uh, then it's great. uh, Then please please use it and please follow that uh, teaching Yeah. Mr. Arjan, can you please teach us a way to uh, be compassionate towards the people who repeatedly disturb you in the meditation hour, <laughs> walking in out of the hall, making noise with their belongings, etc. Thank you, Arjan. Uh, oh, so you already know. Now you know. Yes, I have already taught you that once. Now you already have compassion established, right? Uh, so you are ready for the next session, and then uh, you will have all. You will have is metta because of that. Uh, so. Um, Yes. Uh, it's also one of the things that happens during these retreats is because we have kind of two retreats on top of each other. We have the people who are only staying for three days uh, and the people who are staying for seven days. Uh, and sometimes the people who are staying for three days uh, they are a bit more restless than the people who are staying for seven days. Uh. So on Monday morning, it is much more peaceful. Yeah? So if you hang in there for Monday morning, uh, then <laughs> it will be better. Uh. That, was, that is my experience from the last few years. Uh. So uh, I'm just, just telling you, letting you know uh, so, always be patient, be compassionate, be kind. That's always the only way to deal with these issues. So. Okay. How is it possible to avoid or manage anger when trapped in an abusive situation which you cannot simply leave? Um, you are trapped in a situation of abuse and you can't get out of it, then how can you avoid or manage anger in that kind of situation? And um, uh, first of all, it's good to come on a retreat like this, yeah? Uh, hopefully you haven't brought the abusive situation with you here. Uh, hopefully you're kind of moving a little bit away from it. Uh, that's already a good thing. It means you have a bit more chance to get an understanding, an overview of what's going on, a bit more, more perspective. That's already useful. Uh, so what you uh, what you really the only thing you can really do in that kind of situation in the long run I would uh, advise you if you can to get out of that kind of situation in the long run find a way of getting out of it because it's really unsustainable to be in an abusive relationship or situation or whatever it is it's not really uh, it's not it's not going to work out in the long run so you you need to do something about that but uh, in the meantime again it comes back to this idea that uh, Uh, Someone who abuses someone else, uh, they are actually the main, um, they are the one who receive most of the problems of that abuse. They are the first victim uh, of the abuse, is the person who actually does the abusing. They are the main problem. uh. So it is always very useful to uh, remember that. And when you remember that, uh, uh, then... Uh, gradually you can start to let go. You remind yourself that people are like, as I mentioned before, red lights. Sometimes people do things, and if they are abusive, basically it means they have been conditioned to be like that. They can't really be any different. And because they can't really be any different, and they do things that are terrible to the people around them, Then after a while, you start to feel sorry for them. You start to feel, gee, this person, they haven't really, you know, their life is terrible. And they are going to drag themselves down, they're going to drag other people down. And because of that, you can have compassion for abusive people. For them, the long-term consequences are far worse than they are for you. All you have to do is deal with it uh, for a while and then you can maybe leave that situation. They have to be with it all the time. They can never get out of it. It is a habit that they have usually cannot get out of at all in this lifetime. Often they carry it with them from life to life and often it leads to terrible complications and problems. So always uh, think of people as being trapped by their personality, trapped in the situation they are. It is not their choice to be abusive. The reason we get angry and we react is we think that they could have acted differently. That's why we get angry. Yeah, they shouldn't act like that. They should be different. But is that realistic? Probably not. They probably should act like that because they have no choice, And then you can turn this around, at least very, very slowly. You can start to turn it around. uh, And you can uh, at least let go of the anger and maybe even down the track. You can maybe even have compassion for them uh, when you see what's going on. So this is really the ideal way. If you are too close in the situation, it is hard to do. And that is why it is good to get out of that situation every now and again, to get a bit of distance and perspective. You can see it differently. And then that enables you to... um, uh, to to change that viewpoint that you have that look at things in a different way here, yeah. and all of this is really based on the Buddhist idea of non-self. Yeah, that we are p- human beings are conditioned phenomena. Each one of you is a conditioned phenomenon. Yeah, that's what you have to kind of understand. It's hard to understand. Yeah, you feel like you have this sense of self. It feels like you have this ability to make individual choices and things, but uh, really the best way to look at yourself is as a conditioned phenomenon. So if anyone asks you what you are, you should say, I'm a conditioned phenomenon. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um. Dear Ajahn, with desire being the cause of suffering, uh, is it possible to balance a spiritual life with the ambition to do well in the outer world, um, it is possible, yeah. But um, uh, remember, you—you you, you, maybe the problem here is not so much doing well. The problem often is the desire to do well, yeah. And and you have to ask yourself whether that's really worthwhile. Yeah, the desire to work. Why do you want to do well in the outer world? And very usually, the reason why you want to do well is because you think it's going to bring you something positive. Otherwise, it's pointless. So, is it going to bring you so anything positive? And the answer is, whatever. However, well you do in the outer world, it's going to be a very, a fairly shallow sense of satisfaction and uh, contentment compared to the satisfaction you can find in the spiritual life. Yeah. So if you have that desire, the craving to do well, you have to ask yourself, why is that? Why is it there anyway? And probably it is because of some kind of distortion in perception and your outlook, some aspect of wrong view that makes you want that in the first place. Yeah, it's natural. Most people want to do well in the outer world to some extent. I'm not really saying it is bad or evil or anything like that. But ultimately it comes from some degree of distorted perception of where happiness is to be found and where true satisfaction is to be found. But um, uh, uh, just remember that uh, uh, if you are going to do well in the outer world, Make sure that you imbue that uh, uh, success, or whatever it is, uh, with spiritual qualities. Uh, if you go along the path to worldly success, uh, make sure that you fill it up with all the right, uh, in the right way, that you do it in a way which is kind and compassionate. Uh, if, if worldly success is at the expense of the spiritual success, uh, that is when you have a real problem. Uh. Yeah, and this is really where the problem arises. So if worldly success becomes so important to you uh, that you're willing to kind of uh, uh, forget about your precepts, forget about kindness, forget about all the things that matter, really matter in life, uh, that is when you have a problem. But if your worldly success does not impact your um, spiritual life in a bad way, then it is not really an issue. Then, you, of course, you can be successful uh, in whatever way you define success for yourself. So you just have to know that um, uh, you have to get your priorities right, and if as long as your priorities are right, uh, then any kind of success is is perfectly fine. Uh, the problem with ambition, uh, once you have ambition to do well in the outer world, that ambition tends to clash, will always clash to some extent uh, with your spiritual ambitions, yeah, because sometimes you will put in a situation where that ambition. Uh, will demand things from you that are not going to be to your spiritual advantage. Uh, For example, you're going to have to work long hours, yeah? And when you work really long hours, you get really grumpy. You come back home, you're really grumpy with your family, and you can't really be kind anymore, uh, yeah? And you choose a job that that is a little bit too demanding for yourself because you want to climb the corporate ladder, you want to make more money, or you want to be successful in whatever way it is. uh. So all of these things, you have to understand that the tense, once, once you have ambition, uh, there tends to be a clash between your spiritual goals uh, and your worldly goals, uh, goals, and that's where the problem arises. Uh, but if your spiritual goals, if you put them first, uh, if that is what really matters for you, uh, then you, tend to, you try to subsume all your worldly life uh, under the spiritual goal. Uh, and then you ask yourself, uh, how can I live my worldly life in such a way as to... Uh, be part of the spiritual path Uh, so it promotes the kind of values it promotes the kind of mind states uh, that make meditation possible that make happiness possible all of these kind of things Uh, that is the ideal way of looking at things Uh, and then uh, if you still are if you still succeed uh, in your worldly life no problem of course uh, uh, but uh, at least then you have uh, you are assured that you will make maximum spiritual progress uh. It's all a balancing thing, and it depends on how much faith you have in Buddhism. It depends on how you know your depends on all these kind of things. Uh, but uh, uh yeah. Okay. Dear Ajahn, uh does the sutta mention anything about vegetarianism, vegan and fasting here. Is there anything about vegetarianism and vegan and fasting in the Sutta? Uh, there is only there is one passage about vegetarianism. Yeah, I'm sure you may know about this already. And this is kind of a strange passage because it's probably different from what you think it would mean. and this Or you might think the Buddha might say. And this is a passage where Devadatta, Devadatta was the Buddha's cousin and he was the one who wanted to split the Sangha and lead the Sangha. And he says to the Buddha, well, you know, I would like the Sangha to become vegetarian. And then the Buddha says, well, you know, everyone is allowed to be vegetarian if they want to, but it's not going to be a policy in the Sangha, everyone has to be vegetarian. And then based on that, Devadatta splits from the Sangha and decides to start up his own community. That was one of the five points that Devadatta proclaimed. So the Buddha doesn't really say that uh, uh, you have to be vegetarian as a monastic, nor does he say that about uh, uh, lay people, that you have to be vegetarian. Uh, There are uh, parts of Buddhism, in Mahayana Buddhism in particular, where the monastics are vegetarian, but that seems to have more to do with historical reasons, in China in particular, that it was kind of laid down as a rule by the emperor or something, uh, and then... The Sangha became vegetarian as a consequence, but not really the Buddha. But of course, just because the Buddha didn't lay it down, it doesn't mean that it is not a good idea. I personally think it's still a good idea to be vegetarian. There are probably many more good reasons now than there was at the time of the Buddha, Uh, in particular when you know a little bit about the uh, suffering that animals go through, when you know a little bit about uh, uh, health reasons as well. Yeah, eating less meat is good for the, supposed to be good for the health. When you know things about climate change and the relationship to meat production, all of these things are good reasons to be vegetarian or even vegan. So just because the Buddha didn't say so, doesn't mean that it is bad to be vegetarian. It may still be good. Uh, especially if you are vegetarian in a good way, in a way that you're just doing it for yourself because you think it is the right thing, uh, and uh, you don't really worry too much about what other people do. Uh, then it's a, it's a positive thing. Uh. I tend to be vegetarian myself most of the time. I'm pretty flexible because uh, I, you know, when you receive when I uh, when you receive other people's. Uh, uh, gifts of food, well sometimes you have to be flexible there's just not not two ways about it Uh, but usually I tend to be vegetarian if there is an opportunity for that Uh, so I personally think it's a good idea but the Buddha doesn't really lay down any specific rules about this Hey Ajahn, what are your thoughts on Coffee and tea—does it interfere with meditation? Do you drink coffee? Thank you. <laughs> yes, I drink coffee, and uh, does it interfere with meditation? Uh, not, not really. I think I think coffee is uh, is fine, but uh, this may be individual. It may vary with the person. Uh, maybe if you are a person who thinks a lot already, and then you get coffee, you really start thinking. Yeah, it really starts churning around. Uh, so it probably depends a little bit on your mental proclivities, yeah. what actually is going on in your mind. So check it out for yourself. Maybe early in the morning you're really tired, you come in here and bleary-eyed and you can barely stay awake. Try a cup of tea or try a cup of coffee before that and see if that makes it better. Uh, there are lots of monks who drink tea and coffee and uh, some of them are really good meditators and I don't think it has much effect Uh, At least not on them. So you just check it out for yourself. Uh, Yes. Okay. Dear Arjan, my friend's aunt and uncle became a nun and a monk. That's really cool, isn't it? Uh, But they live at home, drive, and go on holidays. (laughs) Are you... Are you sure they are monk and nun, and not something else? That's, okay, uh, they receive money for the prayers and rituals. Uh, is this right, monk and nunhood? I am confused. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting, are they? I'm not sure what kind of monk and nun they are. In that case, they're kind of an unusual, unusual nun and monk. That's for sure. Uh, um, the uh, I, it, there are many different ideas of being a monk and nun in the world. Yeah, People have very different ideas about this. And in Mahayana Buddhism, for example, it is quite different from uh, Theravada Buddhism. And it tends to be perhaps normally a little bit more worldly, but not always. Sometimes you find some really good Mahayana monks and nuns as well. Uh, but even within Theravada Buddhism, there's a vast number of ways that uh, the monastic life is practiced, and you do indeed find monks and nuns who drive. Uh, you do find that living at home. You find that as well because sometimes they don't have a proper monastery. Go on holiday. Well, I'm not sure if that is really re- shouldn't really be required if you are a monk and a nun because kind of you know it's supposed to be one long holiday anyway if you're a monk and a nun. Yeah, <laughs> this is kind of the purpose of it. So, uh, actually, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Sometimes you have to work quite hard as a monk and nun. But, uh, um, so, uh, 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 the answer is that you have to maybe make a distinction between the ideal monkhood and the ideal nunhood and compare that to what is often the reality of people's experience and the ideal one is first of all not to live together as a monk and nun that already sounds a bit suspicious if you live together as a monk and nun yeah it's going to be very hard to really be completely separate and be independent when you lived if you were Wife and husband beforehand, and now you st- continue living together i don 't think that is the ideal way for detaching and for making the mind free of the attachments of life yeah it 's already not a very good idea and um, uh, all of these things that you are saying here are not absolutely terrible they 're not kind of they don 't contradict the monastic life completely, but they are quite far away from the ideal kind of monastic life. The ideal kind of monastic life is you live in a uh, in a community where you don't live with your, your wife, yeah. first of all, uh, your wife goes to the nun's monastery, you go to the monk's monastery. Yeah? Uh, you don't use money, uh, ideally. Uh, ideally, you don't live at home, but you live in the forest in a hut. Uh, yeah. When you go on a holiday, you just retreat into your kuti, and you hang out in the kuti for a week, then you have a holiday. That's kind of the idea of holiday in monasticism. Uh. So that is the ideal way. Uh. So does that mean that you're... Your uncle and auntie are not real monk. It's not a real monk and nun. Um, I would say they are borderline. Yeah, when (laughs) I'm not sure if this is the this is quite far away from the ideal ideal way of living uh, living this particular life. Uh, Anyway, they are trying their best. Yeah, they are trying to make the best out of what may, for them it might be the best thing they can do. So you have to praise them for at least living well and doing the right thing and hopefully being kind and compassionate to people. And that is already a wonderful thing here. So already they are heading in the right direction. So Sometimes you have to applaud the good things people do and not to be too critical because if you're too critical then there's always things that we can criticize in this world. It's much better to applaud sometimes the good that people actually do. Okay, Dear Ajahn, uh, the extract from Diganikaya 16 on the four applications of mindfulness section says to be your own refuge. We know of the refuge. For the teaching to be our refuge, we know of the refuge. How do these fit together? I'm interpreting it as suggesting each exclusively. Uh, Thank you. I i i think the idea is that uh, uh you you are you know especially when you practice meditation practice uh, you go within yourself so you become your own refuge at that particular point uh, but you also need some kind of support to guide you in this uh, so when you are outside the meditation practice and you contemplate this, uh, uh, you, you need something to kind of drive you to your meditation cushion. Uh, you need something to uh, remind you how to live your life and all of these kind of things. Uh, and that's the So The Dhamma and being your own refuge and, and having the Dhamma as a refuge, in this way they kind of go together. Uh, so um, uh, I don't think it should be... Understood as exclusive, because if it is completely exclusive, it may be exclusive at a particular time. So when you meditate, you don't think about the Dhamma, then you are completely your own refuge, and maybe outside of meditation, then you rely on the Dhamma. Uh, so in that sense, it is a little bit exclusive, but uh, you, you need both. yeah. And uh, in Buddhism, we often take about, talk about the Buddha taking the Buddha Dhamma Sangha as a refuge. And uh, that is uh, kind of uh, another broadening out of this a little bit. And of course the idea of the Buddha is just the idea of taking refuge in the Buddha is very similar to taking refuge in the Dhamma. Because uh, you need a Buddha to give rise to the Dhamma in the world. You need someone to have that insight for these teachings to even exist So the Buddha is required, the Dhamma is required. And when there is the Buddha Dhamma, if that teaching works, there's also going to be a noble Sangha. There's going to be people who realize these things. So uh, these are all kind of connected with each other. They're not really independent things. They're part of the same parcel, if you like, the triple refuge or the refuge just in the Dhamma. Uh, and, of course, the reason why the Buddha says this here is because he's about to pass away. So you cannot really have the same kind of refuge in the Buddha as you had before. That's probably why he's emphasizing the Dhamma in this particular context. So uh, if you don't have the Dhamma, it is difficult to find the refuge within yourself because you need some someone to guide you and point you in the right direction how you find that refuge within yourself. So in that sense, again, they have to really go together here. Okay. Dear Ajahn, read the Metta Sutta. Uh, We used to chant, may all beings be happy. Now we chant, may all beings be at ease. (laughs) Uh, We used to chant, not attached to fixed views. Now we chant, not attached to wrong views. When I chant, in my mind, I hear both. I kind of, I kind of understand the uh, rationalization for the changes can you please comment uh, these are just uh, different versions of the chant I'm not sure why different versions have been chosen maybe because they you know we just kind of got them from different sources one year compared to the next year um but um Dit ansha anupagamma means not approaching or not going up to views. And of course, that uh, really refers to wrong views. Uh, But at the same time, the idea of fixed views also is quite nice, because for most people... Uh, the idea is that we tend to hold on to things too much. Uh, and if you have very strong views about things, often we end up in arguments and all kinds of problems. Uh, so the idea of fixed views is also quite nice. Uh, but they are both correct in a sense. Uh, we certainly don't want to have wrong views uh, because wrong views is going to lead you in the wrong direction. Uh, but also not having fixed views also is uh, is quite useful. So they're both kind of uh, um, kind of. Right, although ultimately in Buddhism it is wrong views that is the pro- the, be- the most problematic. If you ask a noble one, someone who has insight into the Dhamma, they will have certain views. And they will be very fixed because they have seen things according to reality. Yeah, you will never be able to persuade them that there is a self, that there is a fixed entity inside of you that is unchanging because they have seen that there is no such thing here. So their views are, if anyone's views are fixed, it is the views of the Noble Ones. They're absolutely fixed. But because they are fixed absolutely, and they have seen it for themselves, they won't argue about it, because they know it's true. So if you don't want to believe it, whatever. Yeah, that's your problem, because I know this happens to be true. That's what the Arias would say. Um, And then you have the one about... um, uh, may all beings be at ease may all beings be happy it's actually happy which is is the pali word sukhita onto uh it means may all beings be happy and uh sabbe bhavantu sukhitatta is happy uh, happiness uh but i think be at ease is used because the kind of flow is perhaps a bit better yeah and being at ease also implies being happy all of these things are closely related to each other so, it are just different ways of looking at things. Uh, but sukka and Sukkita, Sukkitatta in Pali means happiness. So, uh, that is uh, all I can say, just slightly different interpretations. Uh, and because we are dealing with chanting, sometimes the flow matters as well. So That's why you take a bit more liberty with chants, just to make them flow nicely, so that it kind of sounds better when you, when you do it. Uh, Okay, last night you talked about how you should not think about the future. Yet many people attribute their success and the achievement of their goals to visualizing the goals and having a plan to achieve them. How do you balance these two opposing ideas? Or or should you <laughs> should you balance them? Um, uh, so again, it depends on what kind of success you want to have. Yeah, what, how how much do you really want to focus on all that worldly success? Do you want to go there? The problem with worldly success is that you may it may happen, it may not happen. You can never be sure. Yeah, it is always uncertain if you're going to achieve those things that you aspire for, whether it is uh, educational or whether it is professional or whether it is uh, financial or whatever it is, uh, it's just so uncertain. Uh, You just don't know what is going to happen. And usually when you achieve them, they are not that wonderful anyway. So what if you become relatively wealthy? So what if you achieve something in the professional realm? So what if you become, even if you become the world's greatest athlete and you win an Olympic medal, uh, uh, often those people, they achieve that one thing and later on in life all they do is think about that one thing they achieved and they live in the past so you live in the future, live in the li- future, live in the future and then you start living in the past after that uh, once you have success yeah, it's kind of silly isn't it always living in the future until you succeed with your plan and then when you finally succeed you live in the past for the rest of your life because you think about that success it's madness and uh, and, and this is what this is how what actually happens so what you need to ask yourself is uh, is how useful these things actually are. Uh, and um, uh, so uh, if you are going to plan and you want to have worldly success, don't make it too important in your life. Uh, don't make it something that really is kind of everything that life is about. Uh, because if you do that, then uh, uh, it's going to be terrible if you don't achieve those things. Uh, so have a... Dis- uh, change your goals slightly. Uh, make your goals slightly different. Uh, make your goals more about small little things in life. Uh, all the things we have been talking about. Uh, how you can be more kind. How to be more generous. Uh, how to be more compassionate to the people around you. Uh, how you can have more clarity about what actually is really valuable in life. Uh, all of these kind of things. Uh, that is far more useful. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and sometimes just living a very simple life without too much plans or too much kind of... Uh, Achievements actually is perfectly okay if you live that life well. You live it in the right way. Uh, but uh, the, the good thing about living in this way is that if you're, if you have success in your professional life, great. And you still have the spiritual values with you. If you don't have success in your professional life, well, you still have the spiritual values there. So it doesn't matter so much if the worldly life didn't work out. But if it is the other way around and all you have is your, sp- is your professional life, uh, then if that doesn't work out, you don't have anything else uh, to fall back on. Uh, there's nothing there to support you, uh, nothing there to kind of give you meaning. Uh. And for a lot of people, if all you ever do in your life is to uh, uh, live the worldly life, to have success and to uh, you know climb the corporate ladder or have some other kind of success in life uh, or to kind of be socially successful or whatever you want to call it, all of these kind of things, if that is all you do, then all of these things only have meaning in this particular life. Yeah, our social relationships, our family membership, our success, all of that belongs in this world. And then when you come to the end of your life, and remember the end of the life is so uncertain when that's going to happen, then suddenly you're going to feel so empty. You spent your entire life uh, pursuing things that belong to this world, uh, and now that world has to be given up. What does that feel like? It feels like you have wasted your time. Yeah, Now you are kind of naked. You have got nothing to bring with you into your future. It feels terrible and especially what often happens if you are too focused on worldly goals and worldly ambitions very often you take shortcuts in the spiritual realm you think yeah it doesn't matter if i cheat a little bit or lie a little bit because that's kind of required if you want to be successful uh, you know in in whatever realm it is and then not only have you have you, do you have to leave everything behind absolutely everything but in addition to that you have uh, you have made a worse inner climate for yourself by making your inner life worse as well and by deteriorating your brightness and your happiness inside. So you have a double whammy. And when you, then when you're on your deathbed, you feel really confused because you start to understand that actually you have wasted a golden opportunity to live well. You didn't take that opportunity and now everything has to go. So this is the whole point about the death contemplation—it starts to put things in perspective. You start to realize what actually matters. What matters is how we live. This is by far the most important thing here. And if you live well, okay, then please have success. But make sure you don't sacrifice your spiritual qualities on the altar of success. Because if you do that, then you are really going to—it's going to be really bad when eventually you have to pass away here. But if you pass away, having lived well, having built up good qualities inside of yourself, feeling more at ease, more relaxed, more bright than when you started out, then you know that you have done what you can in this life. And then you can die at peace, you can let go more easily, you don't cling so much to the thing of this world because you realize that you had to let go of them anyway, and then everything becomes more easy as a consequence. So... um, Don't make those goals too important. If you start visualizing those goals and all this kind of stuff, uh, what you're doing is you are giving rise to craving. uh, You're giving rise to um, uh, all this uh, drive uh, inside of you, all the desires, and all of those desires, uh, they're going to distort your outlook, uh, and eventually they're going to make you do things which are contrary to the spiritual path. uh. So don't make these things too important. Make them secondary. Make them subsidiary to the spiritual path. Uh, and then uh, they will be useful and they will, they will work out. That is the right balance, if you like. One should be subsidiary to the other one. Okay. Oy, I think these ones are left over from yesterday, so let's just have a quick look at these. Um Okay, I push good things away sometimes. Is that ill will? Thank you, Ajahnar Mali. Uh, I push good things away sometimes. Is that ill will? Um, why do you push good things away? It's not a good idea. Yeah? Don't push good things away. Embrace the good things in life because that is, uh, that's good. It's good to embrace good things. So um, is that ill will? Maybe, I don't know. You have to look inside your mind. You have to find out why you are doing it. Why are you pushing good things away? I'm not sure exactly what you mean. Do you mean like good people coming to you and being kind and being doing the right thing, and you push it away because you maybe you maybe you don't feel worthy or something like that? I don't know, but you are worthy because when good things come into your life, it is because you are worthy of them. Yeah. So just embrace them. So. Um, I suppose that you just have to practice uh, the spiritual path and as you do so you will start embracing the good things more uh, as part of your life and have more metta for yourself more metta for the people around you and uh, don't kind of uh, don't think you are unworthy because if these things are available then by very definition you are worthy of these things so just investigate yeah and look at it yourself and try to find out why you're doing this and uh, then you will find a solution to the to the problem. Uh, hi, Ajahn. Thank you for your teachings. You explained the power of reflection today to deal with unskillful actions and thoughts. Could you elaborate a bit about uh, what we should reflect on when it comes to fears, anxiety, and doubt? Uh, thank you once again. Love your approach to teaching the suttas. Uh. Okay, so... Um, how should you reflect when it comes to fear, anxiety, and doubt? So, uh, fear and uh, anxiety, uh, these are uh, rough pr- very similar things. Uh, these are all about the future. Uh, you are fearful about the future. You have anxiety about the future. So these things concern uh, future, potential future problems. Uh, and that is what you are fearful about. Uh, and one of the Great things about living the spiritual life and uh, living the spiritual path is that the future tends to become less fearful because you're building up good qualities here and now and the future starts to look more hopeful as a consequence. But if all you do is pursue worldly aims, then the future is far more uncertain, especially because you know that eventually you're going to have to give it all up. So already by practicing, by putting emphasis on kindness and spiritual values and all these kind of things uh, you're already starting to reduce that thing yeah. uh, and uh, not only that but uh, uh, the problem with fear is really that you are looking at the future in a particular way you're seeing the dangers in the future you're seeing the possib- possibility of things going wrong Yeah, it's a bit like fault finding with the future if you like yeah? when you are fearing what is hap- going to happen in the future yeah? So instead of finding fault with the future, you start to look at what can go right. And then when you start to live a more spiritual kind of life, you start to feel more hopeful because you start to feel that the future is becoming brighter because of the way you live and because of the way you are treating other people and yourself as well. And indeed, this is also a way to get out of depression sometimes. If you feel depressed, you do do acts of kindness, you do acts of generosity, And uh, uh, those people who are really skilled, they are often able to just live by living well, to get yourself out of these uh, holes that we sometimes get ourselves into. uh. Yeah, this is the right way of doing it because it gives you hope back when you live well. When you live well, you, the world looks like a nicer place because you act well, because you are kind. It also feels like the world around you is a kinder place as well because we tend to project how we live also onto other people and the rest of the world. So by being kind, you are seeing a kinder world. By being bad, you are seeing a badder world. Yeah, And that is, uh, that is part of the problem so be more, look at the future, look at the possibilities. Yeah. Now you're practicing well, uh, and maybe you're going to continue doing this for the future, you're going to do your meditation practice, you're going to build up all these good qualities, uh, and you start to see uh, see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, you start to have less, un- less anxiety about what the future is going to bring. Yeah. Um, doubt. Uh, so to overcome doubt, just... Uh, uh, the best way to do that is just to uh, continue, I suppose, reflecting on the Buddha's teachings to see how they work uh, in your life, to see when they work and when they don't work, be wise about how you uh, how you reflect on these things. Sometimes doubt is perfectly okay. There are certain things that are good to be doubtful about, uh, but there are other things that it's best uh, not to have doubt about. For example, that kindness leads to happiness. If you doubt that, then you have a very then of course there is a problem. But uh, presumably you don't doubt that because that's kind of I I don't know. I guess for most people here that's pretty obvious uh, that if you live a good life, it leads to being happy, it uh, leads to happiness. Uh, but uh, just keep on studying the Buddhist teachings uh, yeah, and then hopefully you can overcome at least doubt in the spiritual realm uh, through studying these things and then uh, gradually seeing that they work well and then uh, uh, hopefully that will work uh. ok, let me just finish off last couple of questions uh, it's getting a little bit late but uh, I think we can do that uh, some people are born with a kind heart. They are more accepting and compassionate to others and willing to help. Most of us are not. <laughs> How to develop a kind heart. Can Ajahn describe the process and the steps? Thank you. <laughs> How to develop the kind heart. Um, well, kind heart is like metta. Yeah? It is like uh, having, being compassionate and being caring for other people. Uh, And there are a lot of people in the world who have that compassion and caring. But of course, there are many people who haven't got it as well. So the way to develop that is, first of all, you start off by keeping your precepts, by actually acting these things out, acting with kindness, knowing that if you are, knowing that other people suffer if you treat them badly, and knowing that people actually feel really happy when you treat them well. This is one of the reasons for being kind is because it's like giving a gift to other people. When you speak to others, you can give them a gift by speaking in a nice way or you can give them a hard time by saying something bad. You can give them a gift by acting towards them with kindness or you can kind of give them a, a you know a hard time by doing something which is unpleasant. So thinking of it as giving a gift to people and when we give gifts or we receive gifts it is always very Nice when someone gives gives something to you unexpectedly. Uh, yeah, Somet- sometimes you get something. Wow, that was really nice. Uh, how caring that person is to you know to support me in this way and to be kind kind to me in this way. Uh, it really depends on how the gift is given and the circumstances. Uh. But uh, so reflect on it as helping other people. Uh, yeah, knowing that other people they benefit from your kindness uh, in the same way that you benefit from other people's kindness. Uh. Understand that people in the world suffer. Everyone has too much suffering by far, already as it is. And just as you have too much suffering, and just as you would like to get out of suffering, so would other people. And by being kind, by being compassionate, you are easing the suffering in the world a little bit. And also easing your own suffering at the same time. So you have to develop your perceptions a little bit like this. Uh, And as you do that, as you start to see uh, the things in the world uh, in this way, uh, the good good heart starts to develop as a consequence. Remember also that if you see bad things in the world, remember that most people, even though they do bad things, they actually want to be kind. They can't really stop themselves. As I was saying before, the conditioning process is so strong that they cannot help themselves from doing bad things. And of course, then again, you have compassion because you understand it's a terrible situation to be in, to be forced to do bad things against your better judgment in many ways. Yeah, so... Use your perception, use your kind of idea of uh, uh, of other people based on your own experience uh, and then build up that uh, kindness inside of you. See the goodness in the people around you, focus on that. Uh, and when you see goodness in yourself and other people, you tend to want to be kind to them. Uh, and there is a lot of goodness around. Uh, yeah, In a group like this, some people have been complaining about too much noise in the meditation, but... Even though even though you know how do we, do we cannot define too much anyway, but even though there may be a bit of noise, we also know that there is a lot of goodness here at the same time. So focus on that goodness. Why would people be here if it wasn't for that goodness? Well, they wouldn't, yeah, so we, we know that people come to this kind of thing. it is because they have good intentions, they want to do the right thing. So you learn to change your focus. Instead of focusing on the small negative things that are always going to be there, you focus on the big picture. You look at the good aspect in people. At the very least, they are well-intended. They want to do the right thing. And that is worthy of a lot of respect, the fact that people want to do the right thing. And in this way, you become, gradually, gradually, you become more good-hearted and you develop the good side of yourself. And, of course, the main beneficiary of your good heart is yourself, you're going to make much more happy as a person when they have a good heart. Okay, last question for tonight. I always struggle with thoughts of the future when trying to meditate. Can you please explain further how to develop no future attitude? As lay people, how can we not plan and think about the future? Please help me understand. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, uh, again the future is just so incredibly uncertain yeah? if you knew that you were going to be dead in an hour how much would you think about the future <laughs> not all that much yeah? you're not going to start planning your next apartment or your next relationship or what you're going to do at work next week all of that goes out the window huh? so think of yourself as being dead uh, within before the end of this retreat yeah that's really really useful <laughs> huh? <laughs> yes that's, that's a very skillful means so if you can do that uh, then you're not going to think about those things that happen afterwards but the point is that uh, you know we, we think we always have this idea that death is going to be sometime in the future uh, is sometime a little bit out of reach uh, and one of the things that I have always seen in my own life and as I mentioned my father passed away recently and then I spoke to my mother on the phone very soon afterwards uh, and she said oh it happened so quickly Yeah, I didn't really didn't have chance to say goodbye properly here. I've been trying to tell my parents this for you know for years that this is going to happen fast. Still, they haven't hasn't really sunk in. But for me, I expected it. I knew when that phone call was coming. I knew that was a possibility that my father would be dead. So for me, it was like, oh yeah, my father died. Okay, I kind of expected that. So it wasn't really a shock at all. And this is the point. It is never really expected. Everybody says it came as a shock. It should never come as a shock. If it comes as a shock when somebody dies, it means you haven't really understood the nature of life and death. It always happens unexpectedly. It never happens when you think it is, except maybe when somebody is in hospital and they kind of die very slowly. But a lot of people, most people, don't really die like that. And so because of that, if you are not ready to die now then that attitude of procrastinating with being ready to death, you're going to carry that with you into the future, and you're never going to be ready to die, and it means that when something happens, you're going to say exactly that. You're going to say, oh, I didn't expect it. I didn't have a chance to say goodbye. I wanted to ask for forgiveness, but now it's too late. Ask for forgiveness now. Say the things you want to say now. If you don't do it now, it's probably not going to happen So we have to be ready to die now. And if you are ready to die now, it really is as if you have no future. Yeah, you quite literally have no future. And this is what I mentioned just the other day, the idea about the no future perception. I have no future. When you have no future, then of course there's nothing to think about. And all of that disappears. It goes down the drain. So this is one way of doing this. But of course... Uh, you you will say, but oh, I have family, I have to look after my kids and all of that but if you're going to die, you can't look after your kids anyway, so let go of those kids, Uh, let go of those family members yeah (laughs) now is your chance to do that Uh, it may sound harsh, but actually it is not really very harsh at all all it does, it enables you to come into the present moment Uh, it enables you to enjoy the meditation more Uh, and then if you by chance survive this retreat uh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) Then you become a much better parent, a much better whatever it is, when you go back home again, much better child, and then uh, because you have been more peaceful and you have been more at ease during this retreat. So actually, it is a win-win situation when you start thinking like this. So that is how you let go of the future. You have no future anyway, so let it go. Allow it to be here. And remember, the future is, regardless of what it is, it is not. What gonna, whatever you think it's going to be is going to be different from that. It's always going to let you down. It's always going to be pro- problematic. Why on earth do you want to go there? Just let it go, and then enjoy this retreat instead. <laughs> okay, so that is all for tonight. So please keep on enjoying yourself. Have a nice night, and we'll see you back again tomorrow morning. Let's just pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Svarang sammasam buddho-bhagava buddhang bhagavantang ambhivade me bhagavata dammo, Supati pano bhagavato Savakasango sangang namami.